dying's easy. You're going to learn about pain. You're going to learn about loss. Every morning I look at him, look for him, Bill. I look for him. But then I remember it's going to be the same for you. When you look at your ugly mangled face, you're going to remember what you did. You're going to remember, Bill. You're going to remember me. I'm Chris Spivey. And I'm Eddie Webb. And today we talk about the Punisher on Genreless. Hey everybody. Um, so as I do have other meetings today, I will not be doing any more of my Punisher voice more than likely. And I apologize I in for all the people who had their ears blown out listening to this in their headphones. <laughs> I I thought about warning you, but then I said if I warn Eddie, it will not be as funny. Because I can see you when you see me do this thing. <laughs> I I almost <laughs> said that I'm Batman. That's all I mean. <laughs> And I think people know by now, nine out of ten times, I'm going to go for the joke. Of course, yes. Because, Chris, I mean, what we do here is, is a very serious critical analysis that needs to be respected and treated with all due consideration. <laughs> it's part of the process. People, people know that now. They know that if I want serious, detailed information, I go to Chris and Eddie. <laughs> Regardless of topic, be it TV, be it... Um, I don't know. Planetary Life advice. That's what we're here for. Today on Chris and I talk about therapy 101 that neither of them have studied in that I know of, other than I have one class with psychology. How can we help you? I did actually take uh, a couple of, I, I briefly considered going into psychology as a degree in college. And then I realized, whoa, that's way too much talking to people. And never mind, I don't want that. Well, I guess if we're going to be serious, I actually do have a, a major in psychology. It's one of my majors. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. So you actually can contribute more to this conversation than I can because there's, there's a lot of, I think, talking about psychology is going to come up a lot in this particular episode. Well, I guess more about me. One of the things I wanted to do when I was a kid is I wanted to become an FBI agent. And so I, I studied oh, okay. criminology, I studied psychology. And, and why did I follow this course of action? Because as because a young X-Files. child- you stole my thunder. Because <laughs> the whole social FBI agent, you started talking. I was like going, okay, you're the right <clears> age. You probably watched the X-Files at about this time in your age. <laughs> Damn you, Sherlock. Well, I mean, also, it was a, it was a known phenomenon that like the uh, uh, the year after the X-Files, I think uh, applications to the FBI increased by like a thousand percent or something ridiculous. So long story short, I, I chose not to do that in the end. <clears throat> And if people want to know why, you would have to find me somewhere in public and buy me much alcohol for me to start that story. But be warned, <laughs> I tangent a lot, as you may have learned by now, and I would be hard to what? keep one point. <clears throat> I'm shocked. I'm shocked to hear this for the first time. I had no clue you tangented. <laughs> Just how we've prattled on now, and we've still yet to talk about the Punisher. The Punisher. The general character of the show. All right. <clears throat> Since since I started this stick or we'll talk a little bit about the 616 version, I guess I should do that. You should. So we've got the Punisher, Frank Castellone, a.k.a. Frank Castle, a.k.a. the Punisher, a.k.a. Frankencastle, a.k.a. Angel of Vengeance, a.k.a. whatever Marvel could think of to do with him. But at the end of the day, he is an antihero with a questionable moral code that executes criminals or people he can see perceived to be criminals that are frequently uh, underworld associated affiliates because they murdered his family and that sort of became like his trigger. But depending on who's reading the comics that you read, there's always been this vengeance inside of Frank that has moved him through. I think in Garth Ennis's run where he got to take Frank out of the main MC universe and sort of make his own thing where he aged in real time. He fought in the Vietnam mm. war and aged all the way up through <clears throat> And Marvel effectively didn't use a character for that five year period. It was just Ennis and he was telling a very dark story. Yep. And I think one of them was Frank's history of in the Vietnam War. There's like this voice in the back of his head that was always talking to him to pushing him on to kill a little bit more, to a little bit more of this. And it never specifically says it was a devil or if it's just something else. But it is implied he might be like a force of vengeance. Mm-hmm. Which brings me back to a quick... Do you have... You want to... 
Adam? I was going to say, it's like, are, are we glossing over how he was introduced into uh, the comic continuity? All right. So initially he was hired to kill Peter Parker, Spider-Man. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he was working with the Jackal because at the time Spider-Man, it was believed that Spider-Man killed Norman Osborn, who, spoiler for a 60-year-old comic, uh, if you didn't know, Norman Osborn is in fact the Green Goblin! Yes. Who attempted to kill Spider-Man by having his Goblin Glider fly into Spider-Man when he isn't looking. Of course, Peter Parker's Spider-Sense and leaped safely out of the way and the Goblin Glider plunging into Norman Osborn's heart, killing him. Mm-hmm. And rather than leaving the body there at a crash site, Spider-Man picks up the dying Norman who says, Peter, Peter, I didn't mean to do it, Peter. Some of this may be me ad-libbing it just to see Eddie's face. A bit, a bit, and a bit. Spidey swings Norman across town and delivers him to his home. I may be adding in the movie because I like the movie tidbit for this. And then like his, his son sees Spider-Man and everyone thinks Spider-Man killed Norman Osborn. I can fit it a lot of different stuff into that one because I like that narrative in my brain. Mm-hmm. And as Spider-Man is now a murderer, the Punisher is hired to kill Spider-Man and hired by the Jackal who knows who Peter is because the Jackal is also the person that made the clone of Spider-Man who becomes mm-hmm. Ben Riley. And yes. the Jackal is like an older professor who had designs on Gwen Stacy. It's a whole thing whole whole thing and the punisher supposed to kill spider-man the punisher does not kill spider-man and you see this moral quandary that the punisher goes through where he's trying to figure out what he wants to do and the end turns on jackal who he believes jackal killed someone unhonorably and the punisher Mm -hmm. has a code of honor that he goes by Mm -hmm. and the most important part i think that comic run is that when spider-man leaves and the punisher goes his own way you have spider-man known for the tragedy of his life go man that guy's messed up he makes my problems look like a birthday party yes yes hence the origins of the punisher would you like to add anything else i gave like a a rambling overview of frank no that's fine i mean it was more the fact that he well a he was a flunky to a d-list spider-man villain um so he was really expected to be like one or two issues but also we talked before about how uh luke cage was marvel in the 70s trying to uh, uh tap into certain kinds of media and extract it from them frank castle same way this was very much dirty harry their their take on that you know it's like what, what if we had uh, a a cop who went too far and became a super villain and uh, Mar- Mar- punisher was very much intended to be a super villain and then he became wildly popular uh, and so um, kept bringing him back. So a little bit, I think, about that, though, is originally they wanted to call him the assassin. <clears throat> but oh, and right. the man Lee was like, wait a minute. You can't have him named the assassin. Mm-hmm. We need to call him something that we could turn him into an antihero. I'm making a bad Stanley voice because it is a morning where I just feel like doing voices. Because I've been <laughs> in a while. We'll call him the Punisher. And so... <laughs> Having named him the Punisher, that gave them the opportunity to turn him from villain to anti-hero and sort of walk that line all between the two. And also, it was, I think, what made him an incredibly successful character, especially for the time. Right. No, totally. And um, But uh, uh, much like how uh, – we talked about how Kingpin is very much seen as a Daredevil villain. Kingpin started off as a Spider-Man villain. Punisher, same way. He started off as a Spider-Man character, and he was created to contrast Peter Parker – so it's like, uh, at least in the first couple of issues, there's kind of a, what would happen if Peter Parker didn't have his morality? And Punisher was kind of meant to be, okay, this is what would happen if if Spider-Man just killed people because he felt like that's what he needed to do. Because Peter's always floated with that line. Um, and then, like you said, he uh, uh, Stan suggested putting in a little bit there to, in case the character became interesting. He did. Um, they kept bringing him back and, and kind of more elaborate ways to have Punisher not actually kill people because the comics. Could. You mean how they introduced the concept of mercy bullets whenever you guest starred in any other person's comics? Mercy bullets, yes. Mercy yes. bullets, that's what they're called. Bang, bang. Oh, I'm not dead. Yes. It's kind of how G.I. Joe, everyone always jumped out <laughs> with a parachute. <laughs> everyone perish or, or or like they're in an aircraft and they fall into the water and it's like yes but if you hit the water at that speed you're probably dead anyway but whatever okay gi joe you get what you're going for here 
<laughs> um, but that was basically it is that um, uh, uh, a lot of people miss the fact that Punisher was meant to be a villain initially and also was meant to be a cautionary tale. And sometimes some interpretations of the Punisher miss that nuance. It just goes into pure vigilante fantasy power fantasy, you know? And thank you for that very easy segue for me to now go to something else I want to touch on. So one of the things that we keep talking about uh, is the morality of comics and Mm -hmm. the blue lives matter movement sort of appropriated the Punisher symbol a while back. Yeah. And you even had uh, John Bernenthal say, that's not what it's really meant for. But I also didn't think Bernenthal a few years later, like posed with some people using the Punisher thing. So it's a, murky area at best but that led marvel to retire the skull image that the punisher used to use mm-hmm. and now he's using the it's a symbol of the japanese mythology character called the oni okay that's all right that's a choice that was so good. they're trying to disassociate themselves with the blue lives matter movement in some sense mm-hmm. their choice of what they did i can't speak to because I'm not, I don't read Frank, really. I have like a passing knowledge of it. And <clears throat> all of that, so we can now talk about Frank Castle's Super Palace. I'm not going to discuss Frank and Castle. I'm not going to discuss when he's the angel, like the angel of vengeance that God empowers and gives heaven's arsenal. And this, when he becomes cosmically powered, when he takes over the war machine, uh, I think there's even a run where he equivalently becomes Captain America or, or three or 4,000 other things. Or the what if when Punisher kills a Marvel Universe, the what if when Punisher kills Spider-Man and discovers that he was a kid and then goes and violently kills all the people that had him kill a kid. Because that goes back to Frank's code where he doesn't hurt kids and he tries to only target villains, actual evil people. Mm-hmm. But I'm just going to focus on the main one that we constantly and continuously see, which Frank is a fully trained special ops black operative who is at the peak of human condition. He's a master tactician, has extensive hand to hand combat in various forms in weaponry, guns, blades, you name it. He's fought with it. He has an indomitable willpower, so much so that telepaths trying to get him to do things, he can sometimes shake off their effect. This is Frank with no superpowers. Just pure hate is able to do that. Additionally, he is a pilot, master interrogator, has a metric fuck ton of gear. I didn't shout. I saw you waiting for that one. Um, Weapons, false IDs, everything. Frank has done it. He is so trained that he is able to break into the Baxter building. Yep. Frank Castle. Um, and depending on the writer, uh, the weapons slide between extremely accurate representation of modern for the time weaponry and ludicrous nonsense like guns that shoot swords. So well, I mean, everyone wants a gun that shoots a sword. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite runs, weirdly, of Punisher is actually uh, Punisher twenty ninety nine, uh, because he is written by Pat Mills. Uh, who did um, uh, a lot of parodies of superheroes. And so he write, he understands that some of the Punisher concept is inherently funny, particularly from that very 90s lens. Uh, and so he makes up this ludicrous future weaponry uh, that sounds cool, but when you think about it, is is utterly implausible. Uh, like um, he has a, 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 a bat, basically it's a, it's a baton. It talks about how it's it's variable density, so like everything from rubber to titanium, and then it goes. I never use lower settings. <laughs> it's like so you have this really cool concept that, that it, you know he's just ignoring. It, or like he has like a, a fifty caliber weapon, and it's just like, that's a ridiculous caliber. You don't know how caliber works. Um, but Pat Mills recognizes that and just kind of leans into it, similar to like how you about with Garth Ennis's run recognizing that the Punisher makes the most sense when he's not in a superhero universe. He's really just kind of a pastiche of the kind of uh, 60s and 70s stuff like um, uh, Taxi Driver. The Avenger. Yeah. Um, those kind of pulp novel superhero vigilantes. Um, and then you get a weird kind of Ouroboros where it became so popular that DC came up with Vigilante 
which was written by Alan Moore, where he used it to start to kind of put plant the seeds of, hey, maybe superheroes are kind of stupid. Um, so, so there's kind of weird nexus of Punisher as, as a kind of like stopping, starting point of how to actually deconstruct superheroes to a degree. In case there are any listeners that don't know, who is Alan Moore? Oh, okay. Uh, Alan Moore is a grumpy, grumpy man right now. Um, he's so angry. Uh, but uh, he was a British comic book writer. Um, he got his start in the uh, early 80s in British comics, uh, particularly with Captain uh, Britain, uh, as well as many others, uh, Marvel Man as well. Uh, then he became extremely popular, uh, started writing for uh, a little bit for Marvel, but mostly for DC, and um, did a fantastic run on uh, Swamp Thing. And became really no one known for that, and known with, with playing with structure and and uh, using the comic book structure to tell very specific engaging stories. Uh, his, the one work he's best known for is, of course, Watchmen, uh, where Marvel initially had uh, bought some of the Charleston comic characters, and they were going to use this as a gateway to actually introduce them into the DC universe. And then Alan turned in a script, and DC says, "Okay, let's just change those characters because we're not actually going to." do that um so so for example like rostrek used to be the question uh and stuff like that uh and then uh that was very much a deconstruction of superheroes when alan more sort of realized that he doesn't really want to write superhero comics anymore uh and then he goes in a different direction from there let's just say uh and to the point now where he is openly decrying uh, superhero comics as fascist propaganda, which is not mm-hmm. completely wrong, but also bitter old British white man <laughs> to a degree. <laughs> All right. So we, we've given, gone on, I think, more about the Punisher than we have pretty much anyone else, just because the history is fascinating if we look at it through a more modern lens of dealing with things. Yeah. And I want to transition to the show. But before I do that, tangent um i do have one more question for you so we've talked about daredevil and now we're talking about the punisher which one of their approaches would you consider to be better better narratively better morally better socially because you have daredevil who goes beats someone unconscious puts them in jail they break out they come back and continue their cycle of violence then you have the punisher who goes in kills someone Stops her cycle of violence, but commits this atrocious crime of killing someone. Uh, that's an interesting question, honestly. Um, and it really comes down to whether you trust the moral judgments of the people involved, right? Like, uh, let's be blunt. Both Matt Murdock and Frank Castle are are damaged individuals. Yes, uh, uh, they they have they have moderate to severe mental problems. Uh, and Frank, while he comes across as a hard ass, and that's one thing I respect the show actually doing is they actually show this. He's pretty easily tricked. Um, if you can set things up to where it looks like it's a thing that he has to, to punish, he will punish that, which means that he can be, he can be led into situations pretty mm-hmm. easily and frequently is in the comics. Uh, Matt is a little more of a thinker. Uh, but he does have, pardon the pun, a blind spot in regards to how he believes the system actually generally works as opposed to not working. Uh, Frank comes from the opposite position, that the system doesn't work and will never work. Uh, the reality, obviously, is somewhere in the middle. Um, so I am just more inclined to Daredevil's methods because that allows for opportunity of Daredevil making mistakes that are not terminal for the person that is being <laughs> the person that had a mistake foisted upon them. Um, but I can certainly understand there are some people, even in the real world, where I, I can understand the power fantasy of there are some people that just, if they didn't exist anymore, things would be so much better. I recognize where that comes from. But I've also, like you just said, seen it co-opted by some genuinely scary people in the real world that I mm-hmm. can't get on board with it. So it was, I was thinking about Batman earlier, how you mentioned, and it comes back to that question is why doesn't, why doesn't Batman just kill the Joker? Mm-hmm. 
which is a little bit more of a refined, like built-in thing because you know the Joker and you've seen what the Joker's done continuously throughout the Joker's career. Compared to right. this, who Frank is just going out and killing random people and Daredevil is beating random people. Mm-hmm. But sort of spiraled out of that train of thought I was having. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that. All right. I guess we'll we'll get to the to the actual show now that we're 20 minutes on. Um, season one, episode one, 3 a.m. Frank Castle hunts down and eliminates the last of the goons who killed his family. Then it jumps about six months and you find him work, waking up every morning at 3 a.m. from a nightmare of his family's death. Castle, during the day, endlessly works construction, destroying an old building. This angers some of the other workers who are denied overtime pay because Frank is probably doing most of his work for free just to destroy the walls. Curtis Hoyle, a veteran that served with Castle and now runs a support group for veterans, has a conversation with Frank discussing some of their questionable activities in Afghanistan. And then a new worker, Donnie Chavez, tries to befriend everyone there, Frank and the other workers. And his Frank says he doesn't want any friends, and the other workers end up using him by recruiting him to steal money from a local gang. But Donnie accidentally reveals his identity to the gangsters, and the other workers bring him to the construction site to kill him so he won't rat them out. And Frank is there, who he kills the other co-workers, finds out where the gang is, and then goes and kills all of the gang members. While we get a brief scene in the Homeland Security of Agent Madani begins investigating Castle's Afghanistan troop, believing they killed her previous partner. And we also get the soul man himself as her boss. Mm-hmm. See Thomas Howell. I will never forget see Thomas Howell doing blackface. Yeah. When did he do that? I missed that. Soul Man is a movie in the 80s. Oh, right. And I could go on about that movie. It is insulting. And I hate seeing him when I see him. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, um, uh, so for the, we didn't talk about this real quick, but um, uh, Punisher actually gets introduced into this continuity in season two of Daredevil, which we didn't cover. And season two of Daredevil is kind of Punisher season zero. Uh, because Frank Castle is not just a walk-on character. He's a reoccurring character, and his arc of trying to avenge his family actually happens in the Daredevil show. Uh, so on the one hand, I respect that the, the people who did this show were like, okay, we need to wrap this up real fast so we can tell the show we want in a way that doesn't require people to have watched Daredevil 2. On the other hand, it really comes across of like, okay, let's do two minutes. He, he just murders everybody, and then he's fine now. <laughs> and then now we're going to do our show. It, 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 it felt like it was almost kind of throwing the continuity out the window to a degree of like, yeah, yeah, whatever. He, he, he just, he just did that. That just, that just happened. And it's all good now. Um, I, I felt like digging into the consequences of that quick wrapping up would have been more interesting. And maybe they do in season two of this. I don't know. Um, so but, uh, it, it felt dismissive in the moment. For me, I like that because this is almost equivalent like a Punisher Year 2 or Punisher Year 3 because mm-hmm. all that happens in Daredevil and I understand it's important in Daredevil and there an ep- there's an episode I think when Karen comes back for like 15 minutes and that I think okay. that touches on some stuff that happened in Daredevil but this isn't a show about Daredevil. This is like a show about Frank now coping with that and what he's going to do after he's done like the mission Sure, and that's what was a that I enjoy seeing about the show because vengeance is like this powerful, corrosive tool inside of someone. And you get mm-hmm. to see that it powered him to do all those things. And now that that's done, he still has it, but he doesn't know what to do with it or how to channel it. And so that's why all day long, you just see him channeling it, trying to destroy a wall and him trying to figure out who he wants to be. Now that this thing is done and he no longer has a war to fight for, but there's something gnawing at him to go and do more. And it's right. like when Mark Ruffalo's Hulk said, I'm always angry. And that was mm-hmm. a nice joke for the Avengers and everything else. But Frank is always angry. And it's good yeah. to see him trying to control and restrain that. And at any point in time, you could just see him go off the deep end. Mm-hmm. And, and to be fair, I think it was the right decision. It was more the way it was handled was a little dismissive to me. But I agree that I actually liked this first episode in the sense of we're not just dumped into, and now he's a vigilante, right? It, it's the, we spent a whole episode seeing him 
trying not to pick up the guns and inevitably doing it again anyway. Uh, um, it helps that Hoyle, or not Hoyle, um, uh, the, the, the jerks that the local, his um, the co-workers that are basically trying to set up the, the, the assault, get their names, which is not fair. They don't, they don't matter. Um, they're presented as very unlikable characters. They use ableist language. They're abusive. Um, uh, and to Frank and also to Donnie. So it's like, it, it's easy to hate them. And so we're kind of behind Frank ultimately killing them and taking them off screen. And it does have that noir threads going through all of these shows, where in this case, the noir thread is every decision is going to make things worse. And they, they definitely use that well. In Jessica Jones, it was more, she was trying to dig herself out of a hole that already started. In this case, we're watching Frank dig that hole. And every time he does, it's like, okay, but you could, oh, okay, Frank, you did that. All right. But what if he did, oh, Frank, you did that too. Um, but this episode helps to establish why Frank is going to make bad decisions through the show. And so I think it was necessary to do that. So I agree with you. It, you need to clean the slate to do that. Um, but it does show that we went pretty quickly from a show that had was trying to be isolated to a show that had integrated continuity to a show that's now realizing that we have a lot of continuity and we need to give people a, a jumping on point. So we need to actually start going back to the original concept and moving away from the continuity as much as possible. So, you know, we don't have Claire showing up randomly, for example. Um, it, 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 it's, a, it's a structure that's now going, we've now gone full circle. Okay, we need to go back to relatively self-contained seasons and shows. Uh, so I, I understand why it all happens, but it was just an interesting way to to have done that. I I personally almost probably would not have even shown any of that. I probably would have just started with him right after it, and then let us over time realize, oh, he's already to finish his mission. Um, that was my only kind of of criticism. But I do like little things like um, when Donnie's trying to sit down and try to make friends with Frank, and Frank's not mad. He doesn't yell at him. But he just goes, listen, I don't know what you want here. I appreciate it. You're not getting it. He he just lays it down. And it shows that he's not cruel. But he also feels like he can't be around other people. Mm -hmm. Which goes back to the point how you were saying originally that Daredevil and the Punisher both broken characters. I think part mm -hmm. of the point is in... Frank's favor is that Frank knows that he is a broken person yeah, and doesn't necessarily knows he's a broken person. So he's limiting the people that will potentially have repercussions for his actions when he knows whatever's going to mm -hmm. happen happens to them because he also knows that he's a monster for what he's doing mm. while Matt brings in all these people. And then he does things to say that, no, I must do it alone because I'm a solo person. And then all these people have to come and help him and save him. But then they're also, targeted by all the other forces out there that are targeting Matt. Right, exactly. And, and to be clear, um, uh, uh, when I say broken person, I'm definitely talking about this from a, a, a you're talking about fictional characters here, obviously, you know, mental health yes. is, is a real thing and we should definitely not be using that against real people. We're talking about, these are our fictional conceits um, because both of these characters would be very different if they actually got actual therapy. Uh, mm -hmm. But in Matt's case, um, Matt's disability makes that he struggles with one disability and doesn't recognize that that he has a second disability that's also uh, curtailing him, um, including probably not a small amount of concussions, frankly. Uh, but Frank Castle, we see in this episode that he has the, the resources and chooses not to use them. And there's a character in there, which is I actually like the fact that Curtis is there to say like, you should be in group. You should be talking to us. You should be doing this. And Frank's like, no, no, no. He does the macho thing. I'm like, I don't need help. Blah, 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 blah. Um, and it, it's nice that the show's directly confronting that concern, that 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 problem. And it was genuinely refreshing to see because like it could have gone a bunch of different directions. It's like, no, no, no. Frank is just being a macho asshole, and that's a problem. So it, I was like, okay, this is weird, this show about toxic masculinity. I wasn't expecting that in the Punisher. Let's, let's see where this goes. <laughs> so one of the reasons that I like this show and 
I even I think I'm the one that likes put it on the list of us stuff for us to do. You did. Is that note that I did not put Iron Fist on the list. <laughs> um is that <laughs> it attempts to address a real issue, which is what veterans go through when they come home from war. And mm-hmm. for me, that is a very personal thing that I myself had to like try to deal with and transition from because there aren't a lot of government enforced funded sanctioned outlets that help veterans come home right and there's there's a a vast gulf between trying to readjust to living stateside than it is when you're over there and that takes a lot of effort and i don't gonna say reprogramming is the wrong word but acclimatizing yourself to being back because things right. are handled differently over there compared to they are here. And the skill sets that you learn over there aren't necessarily useful here. And then there are fewer opportunities for veterans, which then leads to like this downward spiral that it's hard to get out of. Which, if you want to know more about it, I would say go to like the veteran sites and you can look at the suicide rate numbers and all these. These are like real, actual, real world problems that are still incredibly prevalent today. Yeah. Just to give the uh, warrior project, you know, stuff like that. A, a brief glimpse of myself and to try to use the VA previously, it has been incredibly difficult. I know that when I got back, I put in to try to have some, some help with something and I got a call from them last month. Wow. I have been out of the service uh, for over a decade <laughs> and I put this in when I was still in the service. So to give you an idea of how difficult it is, that's, that's my own journey. And I like, part of my story that I, that I shared, but like this spoke to me in understanding what these people are going through. Mm-hmm. Now and it another, didn't necessarily do it complete justice, but nothing no. would because that's not the aim of the show. No. Sorry. you're saying. I mean, no, I was just gonna say, it's like, I, I've not been in the military, but um, I, I live with someone who's been in the military and uh, my grandfather uh, served in the Korean war. And so even I recognize that the VA is a joke. That's a lot of military personnel. Um, and so when I was watching this show, I could, I, I've seen my, I could see my family members in this. I can see people I've lived with in this. You're right. It's not a perfect representation. Um, but you know, it doesn't flinch away from the fact that, uh, being a veteran is not, a a monolith. There's a wide variety of perspectives in that. And then, and, the, and again, the, uh, Support group scene was a really good example of that. Is there's a wide variety of, of ways to cope with that, and you saw that in microcosm in that scene. Um, and while many of them were not healthy, um, at the same time they were healthier than what Frank was going through. And so again, it gives him another point of contrast. It's like we can see why Frank does what he does. We may not agree with it, but we understand. And so it's an interesting balancing act of. You don't want to be sympathetic to Frank Cancel. Because at the end of the day, he's not a sympathetic character. But you have to kind of be close enough to him to follow him along on this journey for 12, 13 episodes. And this first episode does a lot of hard work to make that possible. So uh, it's and frankly, I think the the him demolishing walls thing is a really good way of doing that. It's it, it's a simple thing and frankly construction jobs are something that I understand a lot of veterans end up in. Uh, uh-huh. uh, and, but it's also a metaphor of him trying to break down the walls in his own mind and it's not working. Uh, so it's, it's, it's well, in some ways it's on the nose. It's, 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 it's a bit heavy handed, but I think it needs to be to get you into this mindset to follow along. So I know that some of the, some of the reviews that I saw when it first came out were commenting that they were stereotypes. It was overly done here and there. But the thing is, this is not something that you see a lot. And it's something that we've touched on before is that you need to go heavy to get the point across because people too easily disassociate it with it from what they're trying to tell you. So then you have to like lean into it. And I can also tell you, having done construction work, construction work is backbreaking and it wears you down in more than just mentally, but physically and pushing you past what your body should be doing. Mm-hmm. So I've lived a, a chunk of this. So it's all I'm saying. And it's 
it was good to right. see. I, I think a very good point is um, uh, we live in a golden age of television. Let's, let's be honest. We, television is more sophisticated than maybe it's ever been. Uh, and so we expect a lot more out of our television. And I think that's, that's ultimately good. I, I'm glad that we as an audience are more savvy and sophisticated than how we consume television and that producers are, are trying to present better and more nuanced products. I think all that is true. That said, I do feel like we have reached a point culturally where people are not understanding that stereotypes have value as a narrative device because we can't follow the storylines of every single veteran in this show. There are too many of them. Mm. We have to shorthand for the audience. This is this kind of character so we can get on to the one veteran that we are going to follow his journey of, which is Frank Castle. Uh, so sometimes, as long as stereotypes are not presented as the only path, mm-hmm. as long as stereotypes are there with nuanced characters, stereotypes, stereotypes offer valuable thing. And in this case, when you have a lot of veteran characters to choose from, it's okay to have some of those be stereotypes because they're not being, they're not holding the weight of all veterans are this. It's the same any marginalized identity. Um, you know, there were some stereotypes of disability in Daredevil, but the one disabled character we're following has a nuanced journey and relationship with disability. So I think it's okay. Hawkeye is the same way. We actually saw a couple of different uh, uh, people with hearing loss and, and their effective journeys. Uh, some of those points lent on stereotype, but again, because we've so rarely saw people with dis- with hearing loss, specifically disability, it's important to kind of get people who don't know this on board before we can introduce later stuff, or even just to, to get them into the, into the car, if you will. Uh, so not every moment requires a nuanced character. Sometimes a shorthand character is needed to help scaffold the rest of the plot. So I'm with you. Stereotypes are not inherently bad. They just have to be used correctly. And in this case, I think, at least in this episode, they are used relatively well. And to that point, and to get us ready to move on to the next one, yeah, yeah. that's where <laughs> we have <laughs> to have Lewis, who is almost like an opposite analog of Frank if Frank had completely gone the other way. Mm-hmm. Who you get to watch Lewis's journey until he becomes a terrorist. And then you have Billy, who is supposedly a better version of Frank throughout the show. At least it hints that it is that he becomes more just it and he starts his own company and is doing all these other things. And right. that's like the illusion of who that character is. Mm-hmm. Anything else for this episode? Uh, the one other thing I was going to mention is um, uh, we very briefly uh, see micro at the end of this episode. Um, and then we're going to kind of jump to uh, a much more in-depth knowledge of who micro is, but this was kind of the a bookend, right? It's like we have Frank and his year one thing. We wrapping up at the beginning of it. And at the end we have micro coming in. Micro is very much a part of Frank as a quote unquote team, um, which is kind of his later, well, post supporting character role in comics. We start getting his own t- uh, his own series. Micro is kind of the example of that stage of the Punisher. So it was a nice way to kind of show that transition, even if I didn't quite like how sudden both ends were. So I guess to tag on a little bit more of that. Well, part of the part of the problem is, and while the creator of the show is incredibly problematic, it is indicative of this type of character. Like while the lone brooding character is a great concept, it's, for instance, for Angel, Angel doesn't work as a show if it's just Angel because right. it is great to watch Angel go and kick Demon Butt. But mm-hmm. then when he comes back, it is no fun to sit there and watch Angel in a dark room staring at a wall thinking, I'll go back out tonight. When the sun's down, I will fight. That's why they have to introduce characters like Doyle, who is sort of like comic relief, and you get Cordelia. So Frank, much like that, needs microchip or micro for this version. Or... Mm-hmm. One of the other version in the comic runs where he goes into like an apartment building has like these people that live in the apartment that become part of his extended family. Yep. And so it's good to see. But the thing with Frank is these characters will never be there long term. Yeah. And so that is sort of a tragic flaw that you have to add into that, which adds an extra layer of complexity to that because it shows that Frank is still human, but he also has to deal with the loss of these people. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Anything else? Nope, I think it's up for that episode. All right. Uh, season one, episode four, resupply. Requiring weapons and ammunition, Castle gets Lieberman to search law enforcement databases for weapon shipments. 
Castle follows a lead to a dealer, Turk, who is our character from Daredevil. Mm-hmm. And I think he even showed up in Luke Cage and Jessica Jones. But finds the shipment was a special delivery and doesn't doesn't serve their needs. Barrett says, Turk says that the main shipment is going to someone else. And Lieberman soon finds that Homeland Security is working on an operation to buy the shipment in hopes of arresting those selling the weapons. Madani, now acting special agent in charge, wishes to investigate Wolf, see Thomas Howell's murder, but is warned against pursuing the matter by another supervisor and is told to focus on the weapons operation. Lieberman and Castle disrupt the agents and hijack the weapons, but Madani pursues them. Lieberman crashes into Madani's vehicle, seriously injuring her. Castle saves her life, revealing himself to her and explaining that he killed Wolf. Mm-hmm. Uh, I chose this episode because it is, I think, one of the best episodes of the season. And it shows everyone acting in part in doing something that sort of highlights her character, which you have mm-hmm. Lieberman, who is micro, and Lieberman's family that Frank has to get somewhat involved with. You have Madani, who is now taken on a lead role. So she's actively pursuing them with her case. And you have Frank being Frank. <laughs> right. And this was um, uh, so, uh, actually one thing we kind of uh, glossed over is also um, we do see um, uh, uh, the establishment of Anvil, uh, which is a private military organization. Um, but it's another to your point. It's like another one of the characters. Like, okay, I'm running out of jobs to do. Where do where do veterans go? Um, and the guy running Anvil talks a lot about. You know how much uh, the country's invested in you. Do you see any of that? Blah blah blah. Uh, so this again, this is kind of a very noirish setup of everyone is acting from well understood motivations, but all of those are going to are starting to coalesce to a crisis point, and no one's going to come out of this unscathed. Digression about the Anvil thing. Um, one of the downsides of living in Atlanta right now is that a lot of the MCU filming and Netflix filming happens here in Atlanta. And uh, so occasionally I see things that are supposed to be in different cities like New York that are actually nearby. Uh, And I live 10 minutes away from an old train yard known as Pullman Yard, which has a bunch of abandoned large buildings. Uh, And that shot with Anvil, I know that building. And the way the windows are structured in the wall, once you see that you can't unsee it because they film a lot of stuff at Pullman Yard. I don't think they do anymore. I think everyone else owns it now. But for like, it's in uh, Winter Soldier show. It's in one of the Captain America movies. It's in this show. And it's like, oh, that's Pullman Yard. I, I, I used to jog there. Um, and apparently it's a private military headquarters now. Uh, and I, I, it, it's a unique me, uniquely me problem of occasionally watching these shows and uh, this happened with uh, Watchmen, for example, the, the HBO show. Um, there's one very critical, highly intense scene that takes place right across from the bar I used to go to after I went out for CCP. And so it's just like, ah, <laughs> oh, that's, that's weird for me. Um, but aside from that, uh, I, you're, you're right. This is a, a really good episode because. Um, so before you go on, Oh. The one thing that Eddie didn't tell you that he told me off air is that if you look really closely, he is one of the people training inside of there because it was so close <laughs> that they put out a call for open editions. And so he's just sort of jogged over and managed to sneak in. So if you go back and pause that scene, you may see Eddie there. I blessed that you think I could pass as any kind of person who's in shape. Uh, I, 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 I appreciate your confidence in me, but no, no, not true. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, I mean, uh, uh, to your point, I mean, this is, it, it's fascinating because this is episode four and, uh, this is the kind of episode I would usually expect to see near the end of a season of a show like this, uh, of, oh, here's all these characters and they're starting to coalesce and come together and we're this early in. And so it sets a certain tone for this show. It's like, oh no, this is going to keep, this is not the part where it gets worse. It gets worse from here. Um, and I think that's really honestly a good choice for a Punisher show because you're right. Frank Castle, when he is written well, is ultimately a tragic character because you really want him to make better decisions and he just can't. 
whether it's because of his mental illness, whether it's because of his circumstances, a combination of factors, uh, political reasons, whatever. The point is, Frank can't make the, the, the good decision. He's, he's got to make increasingly poor decisions that you understand that every step of the way makes perfect sense to Frank and even to the audience. But you could also from you need the kind of Shakespearean tragedy where the audience sees where this is going <laughs> and then it goes there. Uh, so this is a great episode for that because Frank's trying to just not bring Madani into this, but also Frank told Lieberman that he needs to be more involved. And so those two choices literally smashed together at the end of this episode. And, it's, and Frank, you can see it as Frank, uh, the actor's actually really good at face acting. You know, that's kind of, Frank doesn't say much. He's not good at talking about things, but he's good face acting of him going, oh shit, I, I, that's on me, isn't it? You know? <laughs> So the other thing to know is that Bill is the person that starts Anvil and was supposedly Frank's friend in the war. And you get throughout oh, the course okay. of the show that maybe he is not the best person. <laughs> yes. Which we may discover next next episode we talk about. But for right now, it's also your chance to see Lewis trying to like find a way to channel his own rage. And then you have mm-hmm. Curtis coming in to shortcut that saying that, Hey, I don't think he's stable enough to be doing this, to be going back over there. How can you trust him? And he pretty much has Curtis fired. Sorry. He has Lewis fired. And then that continues Lewis down into a further spiral of what to do. And now he has a target for his rage, someone that stopped him from doing this thing that he was going to do. So that is a nice highlight about Lewis's journey throughout the show also. Right. And I mean, to go go back to your point about um, stereotypes, uh, yeah, a guy living in a hole in his yard is a bit broad in terms of how to present mental illness. But we've got two scenes to get this across before we get into Lewis's spiral. So it's like, we don't, this is a show about the Punisher. It's not a show about Lewis. We can't show a nuanced perspective of this. We've got to very quickly express he's on the edge before we watch him getting pushed off that edge. So mm-hmm. it's it's... Again, it, it's not an accurate or subtle representation of mental illness, but it's necessary for this story as a, as, a, as a fictional character to get this across. And it's just sort of like in Captain America and a Soldier, where they have only a few quick moments to get across, like Cap's transition back home when he encounters Sam. Like mm-hmm. it talks about how the floor, the bed's too soft, so has to sleep on the floor. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. he has like his book of stuff he needs to catch up on. Like that is showing a quick snapshot of what it's like to come home. Mm-hmm. This has a little bit more room to breathe, but not much. And it has characters that don't have the superpowers and how they're having to deal with. It. They're just normal people that who knows what they encountered or what they experienced. And to come back and to have really no support structure that you feel connected to. Because like while Lewis has support, he doesn't feel connected to it for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you bring up Cap because I would even argue Cap has never had to go through that. Um, because he ultimately, with, with except for a short window, he basically came back into another war, a different kind of war, and, and and how that modern day warfare and superhero warfare happens is a big part of his journey. But he goes right back into being a soldier. He doesn't really skip a beat. Um, whereas all the characters here don't have that option, with the exception of yeah. again, like the Russo and Anvil, where basically the option is, okay, this is fine, different war for you. Um, so, and why that would be an attractive option, because as we see, all the other options are not great. And I, I know some people that, that went into groups and organizations like that. Mm-hmm. So, it's it's a thing. But I would say for Cap, it's that there was, there was like a moment when it happened. And then you're right, everything starts back up, and it saves him from this possible thing that happens, mm-hmm. which it would have been interesting to see it happen. And then we could have potentially had Cap go and become Nomad. Oh, God, nomad. Um, <clears throat> that that is a thing that could have happened. That's true. <laughs> you know I was going to bring that back in. Um, I know but are. back to the Punisher. <laughs> um, it's also the dynamic between Frank and Lieberman is a lot like a dynamic between soldiers because Lieberman is saying that he doesn't, he has never done that before. He doesn't know how, he does not how to get his hands dirty or anything else. And then you have Frank pretty much antagonizing him to go and do something mm-hmm. and become a more active part of their teamwork. And it sort of builds a bond between the two of them. That's not friendship and right. it's not hatred and they're not frenemies, but there's 
something there that for at least as brief one of time, they know they can rely and depend on each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was this episode where um, Frank is actively trying to get Micro angry. Um, and then when he does, Frank goes, attaboy, now you're on board. And that's that's not that's a very different kind of relationship than a friendship or like you're saying, um, it, it's the it's a it's a it's a tr- relationship of trust, but you don't have to like your coworker to trust them, and that's an interesting dynamic. And you're right, they do a pretty good job of. Although the next episode, I think, goes into that more, but this episode, you start to see that they are building a, a very distinctive relationship. And part of that is because when you're living with someone in tight quarters, and you see the the bunker they're in, those are tight quarters. You see that person all day long, constantly, continuously, and you have Lieberman who can't go out. You have Frank who, if he goes out, is usually for mission and then comes back. Mm-hmm. So it's them living together constantly. You have to form some sort of association. And that was mm-hmm. how they did it. And a lot of that works like soldiers because you're usually stationed together in barracks and there could be anywhere from six to 12 of you, depending on usually barrack size. And you have to find some way to like live together in that space. Otherwise mm-hmm. you just be like fighting all day. Uh, anything else about this? Cause we're, we're running long. Nope. Let's get to the last one. Season one, episode eight, Cole Steele. Russo visits his mother in the psychiatric hospital, injecting her with drugs. He later tells Madani that he grew up in the system. Lieberman and Castle identify Rollins, Lieberman's camera spying on his family's go down, and he sends Castle to investigate. Castle has been spending time with Lieberman's wife, Sarah, since meeting her while investigating who Micro was, and finds out that she disconnected the internet as punishment for her son, Zach. Castle reconnects the internet and has drinks with Sarah, who kisses him, but they both acknowledge this is a mistake. She then asks Castle to intervene with Zach, and he realizes the boy needs a father figure. Knowing she's being watched, Madani sets up a sting operation and releases the information. When, yeah, uh, when Russo and the mercenaries arrive at the warehouse, they am- they're ambushed by Homeland Security. Russo, who is Bill, by the way, who's mm-hmm. is, and his, Bill's team is killed, and Russo kills Stein and escapes without Madani seeing him. And during this point in time, Madani and Russo have formed at least a a physical relationship. Right. Um, and, and also at the very end, the button scene is where a rooster then comes back and comforts her for the murder that he caused, which just really gives you a very clear snapshot of what kind of person Russo is. If you didn't get that from the first scene where he injects his mother with drugs after right. mentally tormenting her and she's like tied to a bed. Right. Uh, but honestly, uh, Lieberman and Castle's relationship is much more interesting in this episode uh, because I'll be honest, when I saw this episode, I was like, I'm not going to like this because it's the, oh, Frank falls in love with Lieberman's wife and the internet's out and that's convenient. And it just doesn't go there. Mm -mm. Uh, And then even when he comes back, okay, but Lieberman's still going to be jealous regardless. And he is, but he isn't. Uh, And it's, it's much more nuanced and interesting as a result. Uh, and the episode keeps pointing in a direction and veering away, which I find really interesting. I said, I think there, there's the is love interest, but it's not a love interest. Then there's a jealousy, but it's not jealousy. And they're friends, but they're not friends. Uh, and um, at one point, it looked like maybe Lieberman was actually hitting on Frank. Uh, and uh, ultimately, Frank's like, I, I loved one person. She's dead. That's it. And I'm like, okay, that is the Frank Castle I, as a comic reader, recognize. It's interesting that we went through all these digressions to establish that because I think that's good because when the Punisher's written badly, he's very one note. It's the, uh, um, my family was killed and now I have to murder all these people because my family was killed. And there's a certain point in time where as a reader you go, oh my God, can you please just get over it? Uh, But this is a really good job of showing that Frank has a range of emotion and can certainly explore that. But at the end of the day, he's going to click back to that cycle. He's going to go. He's going to be at that wall, or he's going to be waking up at three a.m. every single time. He can't escape it. So all this stuff is just a distraction for him. So it's like, and so although the show doesn't say it, you very much get the impression the reason why he's sitting and drinking with Lieberman is because it's like you are an asset. I need to get back on board. 
So mm-hmm. I'm going to do this to get you to a place where you're not comfortable with that ship so we can get back to the mission. And it's great because the show never says that, but you as the audience pick up on the cues and it starts to seep in. It's like, okay, Frank is just straight up using this guy. Um, he may like him. He may trust him. But at the end of the day, he is a part of the mission that is all Frank can allow himself to view this person as. Which goes back to our earlier discussion. While people can like trick and use Frank, Frank is a master tactician. Mm-hmm. And that reinforces it by his ability to turn on like Charming Pete and turn off Charming Pete and mm-hmm. use Lieberman, whatever he needs to do is like, all right, you're upset about this. We can get drunk. We can bond a little bit more. You'll eventually do your thing. And then we'll go back to what we're supposed to do. And you see that constantly throughout the episodes that we've gone through. It mm-hmm. never changes. It's always the same. And the reason I chose these three episodes and not just ones where Frank is like, just having awesome gun battles all the time is mm-hmm. that is boring. Like that's yeah. great for about five minutes to say, Look at awesome fight. Look how Frank popped from the ceiling and shot that guy in the face. Yay. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't explore the characters and explore the world that's going on. And it's not and those dynamics are what build up to those action scenes and give them importance. Like mm-hmm. if someone comes and attacks a bunker, Frank's association with Lieberman is in, is Frank willing to die to protect this asset? Will Frank kill all these guys? Will Frank just decide it will be easier for me to leave you here to come back to then continue my mission later? Like these are things that you invest in because you spent time with these characters. Like we care about Lieberman's family now because we've seen it. That's his constant driving goal. He cares about his wife. He cares about his son. He hates that he's not there. He has to send in this other agent to do these things for him that he wants to be there for. So much so that by the end of this episode, seeing his son in so much pain, he leaves the bunker. This thing that he has not done in like seven episodes. Mm-hmm. to try to give some reason to connect, risking his own life and that of his family that Frank tells him. Right. And he begrudgingly leaves even after Frank makes him leave. Like that right. is drama. That is why you watch it. Right. And it was really a job of showing that Frank is not emotionless. It's just that anger pushes out all the other emotions. And that's a very different performance. Uh, and I think it's done really well here because, like you said, when uh, a Lieberman tries to come back, uh Frank's trying to be, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing, buddy? What are you doing? But that tone carries an undercurrent of you need to go. And it's, it never escalates, but certainly there's an undercurrent of I will knock you out and shove you in a bush if I have you kind of going on here. Um, so while you're right, while he's being charming and polite, the fact that he – gets almost uh, aggressive with Lieberman and then turns around and is back to, you know, hey, let's throw the ball, boy. I mean, he's switching back and forth so quickly. It's all tactical. But it's not that, again, he's not emotionless. It's that there's always kind of that that vibe of anger. And again, little things like um, at, even before Lieberman showing up, when Frank's playing football, he's always checking over his shoulder. Um, he's always, oh, there's, you can see the visual awareness of him keeping the hack of it. So Frank never stops thinking about the mission. And mm-hmm. I, I, I find that it, it, it starts off broad, but then there's these little moments that the actors are bringing to the table that really adds up. Again, like just Lieberman, like his body language when he has to walk away, um, it's not in the line, just on the read and, and how he turned, like if he's checking over his shoulder, trying to get a glimpse of his son. Uh, and, he's, and he's acting, you know, like what? Well, uh, concerned about like, my son needs me. He's he's going down a bad path. Um, it could have been him being jealous that Frank's replacing him as a kid's father. It never quite goes there. It's more, I see my son is in pain and I want to take that pain away, which is a much more understandable and interesting reaction for dramatic purposes than jealousy. It, again, it's, I am in awe of the fact that this episode had five or six opportunities to have put a jealousy plot line in and just refuses to take any of them and mm-hmm. consistently presents a more interesting response each time. Hands down. And it's also part of that is that even when he's talking to the son, you see that he goes in hard because he thinks the son is full of like rage how he is. Mm-hmm. And then they see the son break down and say that it's not rage. You see that little click in Frank and then he goes and he comforts him thinking that like, crap, I messed up. This person doesn't have the same violence in me that doesn't have the same violence in them that I have in me and has to like change his tactics mid course. Mm-hmm. So like that was great to see. 
Yeah, again, a great favorite moment because Frank was behind the kid when he put the knife to his throat and the kid's like, just do it, do it, do it. And you could see his the, the actor's face of like, fuck. You know, and almost you almost see him recalculating in his head. Okay, now how do I play this? Um, it was just, mm, I, I, I did not expect to care about Frank Castle. And I did. I don't care about him strongly as a character. I never will, I think. But this show does a really good job. And to be fair, I think it's your tactical choice of episodes that it's like, I actually want to see, I want to see Frank better. I want to see Frank get past this and also knowing he's never going to. And I think a lot of that helps. So it's like the show purposely went out of its way to create bad people for this bad person to kill. So it, and it constantly reinforces how bad they are. And it gives him opportunities to make good choices, which then touches back to our talk last time about Kilgrave mm-hmm. and you wanting them to make that different choice. Mm-hmm. And it's encapsulated even with Frank, who you see is a straight up murderer. Like there's nothing yeah. for it. Just pop up. Um, just for people's general knowledge, originally I wrote up like a little brief snippet of what Frank's superpowers were. I had two words list written. That was it. Compared to other people that we have like a couple sentences. It was just bang bang. <laughs> that was all I had for Frank's superpowers. But to be fair, that, that is an accurate summation. <laughs> that's who the character is. Right. And the show went out of its way to build a real person mm-hmm. and then put the punisher into that. That is good storytelling. Right. Um, and I think one of the, the problems of Frank Castle as a character overall is that there's a lot of different ways you can go. This is definitely one of many. Um, uh, you talked about the Garth Ennis run, um, and I have I've jokingly in the past, maybe even this podcast, remarked that Garth Ennis seems to be the superhero writer that hates writing superheroes the most. Because he goes out of his way to find ways to really screw with superheroes. And so his Punisher run is much more about... Uh, let's let's tear down what the Marvel Universe has set up. Uh, and so he's not really a character so much as a force of vengeance. I mean, that turns even used with him. Um, so I never actually watched this because I was like, I don't like the Punisher. Um, I'm glad I have now watched this with through this because, like, okay, there's actually, this is a very different take that I do like. Um, uh, there's another writer who did a very similar take whose name is escaping me, unfortunately, but it was about past 10 years or so. The idea of, what would happen if Frank tried to hang up, you know, and just stop doing it? And the answer is he can't. He, he's just not capable of it. Partially because he stops being an interesting character if he does that, but also there's always going to be a worse person. And that's why people like him and Daredevil will never, or Batman even, will never see the end of their mission, is because there's always going to be someone else. Mm-hmm. Any other closing thoughts on Frank? <laughs> all right so i've got a game that i want to introduce know. that i want to introduce next time but i'm going to tell it to you now so you have time to think about it okay as we're going to be doing a lot of superhero shows during each mini season run because we described to people that we're going to do like equivalent little middle seasons of like different right. sorts of comics if we're building a team call your team i don't know the avengers and out of every season we have to pick one character to be on our team. So, you know, like to fill that role of whatever your superheroes team role is and how many seasons we go through. And at the end, we have to assemble our team. But each season on the last episode, we pick who goes. We pick one member. Like, we'll have to decide who goes first. And then you'll pick yours or I'll pick mine first. And then we go forth. And at the very end, so it's a draft. Team. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. I have, I have, I have some thoughts, so we can do that. Yeah. So not going to put you on the spot now, but next, next episode. Right. And so what's going to happen is I'm going to completely forget this and then we're going to record the next episode. I'm like, oh crap. I should have thought about this. And then I'll be <laughs> no idea what I'm doing. So normal for these and, shows. And so for people that think it's going to be easy, it is not because we've got a big document and the next group of shows we're going to do is all plotted out. But after that, it's just like vague notes. So assembling <laughs> your team is going to be very hard. And it'll be even more difficult because Eddie will find out that I'll do a little bit more research into something and say, ooh, we should add these shows in how I did yesterday. Right. right. <laughs> but that's it was, All right. it was a good uh, If no final thoughts then, what can folks expect next time they tune in? 
Oh, next time we're gonna get to the logical conclusion of this run, uh, which is we're gonna talk about. <laughs> no, we're skipping over this. We've talked about this so many times. Um, we're talking about the defenders, which I could argue is Iron Fist is one point five, but we'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, I will say that I personally find the back half of the first season of Defenders to be a bit weak, so we're going to focus on the first half. Uh, so it's uh, episode one, the H word, episode three, worst behavior, and episode four, Royal Dragon. Uh, and if so, folk, good. Just if folks are looking for you online, where can they find you online? Out in the world. Uh, you can find me on Twitter as Pugsteady. That's P-U-G-S-T-A-D-Y. Um, if you are looking for alternatives, I also have set up an account on co-host. Uh, that's Eddie Fate. Uh, and you can find my website at Pugsteady.com or more likely you'll find me hanging out the Darker Hue Discord because Discord tends to be my main place to hang out these days. How about you? Uh, if, if you're looking for me, you can find me for the moment still on Twitter at Darker underscore Hue. After that, I have no idea where I'm going. I've looked at co-hosts. I've looked at Mastodon. I've just looked at restarting my blog. Maybe I will just cease to exist. <laughs> so, all that said, uh, thanks for tuning in, folks. We'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. Unless I don't exist.